most people don't really want to look at the truth and that is that the two big indicators of illness are people stuck in jobs that they hate over the long term and people stuck in relationships where they feel trapped. Mm -hmm. Hi guys, welcome to the Being Yourself show. I'm your host Ajay Mathur and today my guest is Adam Shaw. Adam is a man of many hats. He has been a waiter, a chef, a fitness instructor, a meditation coach, and at the moment he also coaches CEOs of many companies and help them raising funds. He's also traveled around the world and has authored a book called Lunatic Gene. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks AJ, pleasure to be here. First of all, you have done so many things I just wanted to get a little bit more into it. Tell us more about your journey from where you started to today. I think from a young age, you know, I've always been um, into new experiences. Uh, I've always been curious, always wanted to know more, wanted to know what was out there. So as soon as I was able to travel, backpack, go and see the rest of the world, I did. I, I went for it. and. The careers really have been secondary to me and my desire my, my, to travel, to see, to explore, to find out what's going on in the rest of the world. Why are you called the hard guy? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Um, the, the truth is, uh, I, was, um, I went on a mentoring program and I was told that I had to have a niche and I was so resistant. I'd left nursing and I told, I told my mentor I could help anyone. And I pretty much got told on a weekend workshop that if I didn't get myself a niche by the next day, then I wasn't to come back in the workshop. So this is the reality. It's not a very inspiring story, but it is the truth. I sat on the steps outside the next morning, still not having a niche. And in the end, I thought, well, I've looked after enough people that had heart problems. And every problem that everyone has always comes back to the heart. So in my own head, I was able to be the heart guy, have a niche and keep my mentor happy. And that still encapsulates everything that I do. That is interesting. And you end up, ended up writing a book about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've worked uh, for more than a decade in nursing and then you were talking to the people who were close to their end of life. So tell us something that you've learned with that experience, spending your time with the people who were actually struggling to come out of it. I think the most helpful um, thing that I've learned, AJ, which will be useful to your audience, um, is the early warning symptoms. One thing that people that have heart disease, cancer, strokes, um, most uh, genetic um, medical dispositions or supposedly genetic um, dispositions, ones that happen slowly over time, People often come in and say, there was no warning. I had a heart attack, I didn't have a warning. So I studied this, I studied the psychology of heart disease, not just the physical symptoms. And what I found is that there's a very um, predictable succession of events that lead to a heart attack, to cancer and to strokes. Mm -hmm. So for people that say they've no warning signs, I used to take them back in, in reverse order because the last thing you get as a warning before a heart attack 
is little stabbing chest pains that we tend to ignore. That's your final written warning, <laughs> if you like. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, you'll get medical symptoms like hypertension, diabetes. Um, these are classic, you know, later stage developments of the warning symptoms that will lead to these diseases. Prior to that, and here's the big one, here's the pit that most people fail to realize because most people don't really want to look at the truth, and that is that the two big indicators of illness are people stuck in jobs that they hate over the long term and people stuck in relationships where they feel trapped. Mm -hmm. And the usual things are people can't afford to leave the job because they're a certain age in their life, they're earning a certain amount of money, they'll never get that money anywhere else. Add the stress that a lot of firms now are the redundancy, that's going to have a big impact, or the threat of redundancy. And then there's people stuck in relationships where they've got joint mortgage, they've got kids involved, and they tell themselves 101 reasons why they can't split up. Yet they're living in misery every day. That's the biggest warning symptom of anything mm. as to warning for stroke, cancer, heart attack down the line. So I have had um, one of my actually close relative died of heart attack and he probably had some symptoms before but I have also seen so many cases where people were like completely fit and healthy there was absolutely no problem they didn't have diabetes didn't have blood pressure and all of a sudden got heart attack and died have you come across those kind of cases that people had absolutely no clue to why did they get that yes I, I have yes I have I mean we, we used to see some fairly young people um, die. we used to see a lot of um, people that had very healthy lives, especially when I did my placements in the private sectors. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite common because I believe that it's not about, I mean, the physical activity that you do to offset disease is only a small part of the equation. If you haven't done the psychology part, if you're not right, right in the head, if you're not happy with yourself, if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, then it doesn't matter how fit or healthy you are, you're still going to have the same progression of dis-ease. And that's what it is. It starts in the head and then manifests into the body. Mm. So it depends um, why people exercise. If they hate exercise and they're doing it because they think they have to, then the, the negative mindset of having to do the exercise and the resentment towards it could be more damaging than the actual exercise is rewarding. So there has to be a balance. It has to be physical, mental, and spiritual, as well as the physical. So um, if you're not looking at well-being as this big package of physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, everyone seems to just focus on the physical. It's mm. not enough. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like taking your car for an MOT and having them check one tyre, saying, oh, well, that, that's all right. The other three must be okay. Mm. It's the same equivalent. When you're talking about the negative thoughts, and I've read your book, The Lunatic Gene, and in your book you talk about there is no such thing as negative feelings or negative thoughts. Tell us a little bit more about it. How, what does exactly that mean? 
There's negative thoughts, but neg negative feelings, I believe, don't exist. Mm -hmm. Feeling, our feeling is like our, our bodies, um, sat-nav. It's like a sat-nav. Emotions are a sat-nav. So uh, let's just suppose, suppose somebody abuses me um, in a life situation. I feel anger, I feel frustration, you know, I, I will go through a, a range, range of emotions. Are they negative? Or are they completely justified in that situation given what's happened? So I could label them negative if I wanted, but no, I would want to feel that way if somebody abused me. If somebody did something negative to me or my family, then it's not, is it really negative to experience anger or is it completely justified? Is it the guidance that this behavior is unacceptable? Mm. And if that anger is to change my behavior so that I address this issue or I ignore it, I rise above it, you know, that the, the, the emotion there is just a guidance. So they're saying, actually, this doesn't feel good. And it doesn't, and it shouldn't. And I never want it to feel good to receive abuse. But what I can do is say to myself, well, this is an emotion that's telling me that I'm not going to accept this anymore. So that's a challenge for me to then go and do something about it. Mm. So was it negative? No, I don't think so. I mean, it feels negative. It feels uncomfortable. But what it's actually saying is, no, Adam, you don't. This is not right. It's just a guide. Yes, this is this is quite insightful. All the problems are actually coming from within. And there has been a lot of research nowadays. A lot of books have been written. There are a lot of YouTube channels talking about it. If you can resolve your, if you can make your internal garden, you know, happy and prosperous, then you will be having a good health and everything else will be sorted. But most of the people who come out to come with these kind of realizations have some sort of experiences when they were kids and that actually inspires them to do something in this area. I just wanted to ask you, is it all because of your experience with the others who had those kind of issues, or you also had yourself some experiences which kind of inspired you to know more about your inner well-being? That's a really good question, AJ, and this is where my big reveal comes out. You know, I don't have the healthiest lifestyle. Um, I do, uh, I do have habits that you know, would not be conducive with general well-being. Um, but what I do is, is in my head, I make peace with myself over that. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to do something that I know isn't 100% healthy for my body, what I'll do is add something to add balance. So, for example, if I was to go out drinking for an evening, the next day, or certainly the day after that, I would go out on a much longer walk than I normally would to offset symptoms. So what I use is an, a potential unhealthy thing to trigger something that's much healthier. Mm. So because I keep that balance, I keep guilt at bay. I'm not the one that's gonna look at the chocolate bar and think, oh, I shouldn't have it. No, if I want chocolate, I'm, I'm gonna have chocolate. Exactly. You know, if, I, if, if, if I've had a day and I want to have a smoke, then I'm going to have a smoke, you know, that's it. That's, it's, and if people want to judge me on that, well, that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> I mean, they'll say it's my problem because I'm the one that's smoking, but, yeah. you know, I've known people that have smoked all their life. 
I used to nurse patients in their 90s. Um, there was one, for example, that smoked 60 a day for 60 years and came in with pneumonia. Wow. And I told him he couldn't smoke on the ward. I watched this guy lift his Zimmer frame up and walk down the ward to get out so he could get outside and have a smoke. Oh my God. True story. Um, because these days, the government, they're putting on every single packet of cigarettes, smoking's going to kill you. Right. That's going to kill people faster because they start to believe it. Oh, I see. Now, there's no question that smoking uh, is not good for your lungs. Yeah. But the mindset is just as important mm. as the smoking itself. Yeah, the idea is to stop people from buying it. Now, yeah. th there was a joke about it. So you have like different pictures and then there is some part of some part of some disease which are so scary. So I'll just say, you know what, don't give me that cigarette, give me the another one which has got a different picture on it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that looks uh, kind of not that scary. <laughs> disease. Yeah. But... The, the one with the throat cancer <laughs> yeah. or the person lying on bed dying, oh, don't want to look at that. And it, it really is. You can call it, you can call it certain death and people will still buy them because yeah. it'll be cool to yeah. smoke certain death and still be alive at the end of it. You know, you're never going to stop people doing what they want to do. Mm. The problems come in when we start judging others through our own lens. Just because I've given up meat doesn't mean that I should go on a campaign and make everybody else, you know, it's their choice. I think people should do what they want. Do exactly what they want, when they want, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else but themselves. That's a tricky one because people, some people don't have empathy with themselves. And you know, the example of it are, are the criminals. When they commit some crime and they go into the courtroom and they have absolutely no remorse and they are fine if you give them a life sentence, they're like, okay, fine, right? So these are the people who forget about having empathy for others. They don't have empathy for their future self, right? And well, this is an extreme example, but this happens every single day with all of us because we all know that sugar kills, right? And we'll all go and have ice cream and chocolate and whatnot. How do you kind of stop, like, and I will go to the chocolate shop and I'm really, really kind of craving for it. I'll go and have it. I don't know what's the point of the life if you can't do something you want to do. In such things, such uh, circumstances, how do you stop yourself from not doing what is not right for yourself? Well, you've hit me with a loaded question there, AJ. I mean, there's, there are psychopaths out there, people that do not have empathy. You can't, um, you can't judge yourself by their standards. You know, we're all accountable to our own standards. There are people out there, there's murderers that will kill someone and they won't lose any sleep over it. That's the world that we live in. Mm. You know, there's two ways to look at that. The first one is, and funnily enough, psychopath CEOs, I mean, they're probably CEOs because of that, that they can let people go and not lose any sleep over it. Yeah. There's a place in our society for psychopaths, and unfortunately, it's usually at the top of the tree, because anyone that really cared about people would never make it mm, as a leader top. because of the decisions that you have to make. So, you know, who am I to judge it? Um, if People are doing stuff that is affecting other people. I mean, clearly, you know, polluting rivers or doing whatever they are for their business, then something has to be done about that. But the thing that um, I'm against 
is telling people what they have to eat, what they have to exercise, what they, you know, we all have a choice. We know what's good for us and we know what isn't. And if we choose to do it, that's great. If we don't, that's a personal choice. Mm. And guilt and judgment are the two biggest enemies of health and well-being. So if I'm not judging other people, then they don't have to feel guilty about me leaning on them or giving them a hard time. I'd rather not judge them. And in not judging them, I don't feel the guilt that I would have with myself because I'm not judging myself either. If I'm going to go off the rails occasionally, I'm good with that. I'll balance it the next day. So it's all about what you said, our relationships with ourselves. Mm. So if we all worried more about ourselves and stop worrying about what the rest of the world is doing, eating, smoking or um, harvesting, uh, then the world would probably be a better place. Linking that with your book, so you talk a lot about these kind of things in the lunatic gene. And first of all, I want to know what is lunatic gene <laughs> and what role does it play in your life? Well, my, um, my parents were both psychiatric nurses. Um, I was born, um, no, it's not true. Eight months after I was born, both of them got jobs in a local psychiatric hospital. So we moved within the grounds of a bona fide lunatic asylum back in the 70s when political correctness was just a figment of everybody's imagination, didn't even exist. So we went to school, I grew up, I was a lunatic. Um, that was the thing, oh, we were on day release from the asylum. Um, and I had patients walking around, sometimes in their 90s with their dentures out, um, knocking on the doors looking for cigarettes. This was my reality growing up. So my, my baseline for normal is, is probably much lower than most people. Mm -hmm. I mean, normal for me is, um, <laughs> well, no, it's not normal for anyone else. So um, yeah, that would, that would be the start. Lunacy has always been close to hand to me because I grew up in that environment. And honestly, um, at least the patients knew which side of the psychiatric divides they were supposed to be on. It's really the staff you had to worry more about. <laughs> we all have a lunatic gene, mm. okay? So it usually happens when we're in a highly emotional state. Um, when our emotion goes like that, logic goes down. You know, looking at some of the case histories, there was um, one of the patients, my dad took me in, used to work for British counterintelligence. He was a highly intelligent guy working at the very top of the secret service. Um, he had a girlfriend at the time who he thought was seeing someone else and he shot her. And yet, I, I never knew this guy's case history until years after he was dead. My dad just introduced me to him, and he was one of my best mentors ever. I never even knew any of his case history. Uh -huh. One of the most level-headed guys I ever did, and my dad totally trusted him. And this is the reality of me growing up. My mentors were officially lunatics. <laughs> and yet, I got more sense out of the lunatics than I did out of the people looking after them. So after your nursing career and helping thousands of people, you went on doing Reiki, you did uh, hypnotherapy, you did vortex healing. 
and you did a lot of other things. What actually threw you into that personal development area and so deep that you kind of learn everything about it? I think the main region there, AJ, is that I used to, as a nurse, I was working with the, the dying. And uh, what happens in the NHS is if somebody's got a terminal diagnosis, the doctors come in, they deliver the news, people go into shock and they walk out. So they might come in and say, I'm sorry, AJ, you've got like two weeks to live. You've mm -hmm. got an inoperable tumor, there's nothing we can do. And here's the thing, the NHS have to do that because they have to protect their back. They don't want a lawsuit, so they'd rather write you off than give you any hope. Mm -hmm. In fact, if they give you hope and then you die, the family's gonna sue them. And I realized this dynamic that the NHS was playing it safe and actually went, a step further to think is it manslaughter when doctors actually come in and say to you you've got two weeks to live bearing in mind the authority that they have mm -hmm. the placebo effect which i'd studied yeah i got curious i thought there's got to be something else because i was having to uh, answer the question after doctors had given people a death sentence they'd come to me and say is there any hope adam have I got any hope? Mm. And the first time you have to look someone in the eye and not have an answer to that question, it sends you on a journey. Yeah. And that's why I studied so many things to find out, is there hope? Mm. Is there hope? So that was the real quest that I was on. And I've since found, funnily enough, that there is. <laughs> Having so much into the healthcare and nursing and helping people, now, you also do help a lot of CEOs in spatially raising funds, which looks a little bit disconnected. So just, <laughs> just take me through that. How did that come up? Like you started helping businesses all of a sudden. Well, when I first left nursing, um, I was a health coach and I didn't really know what I was doing. I had no business skills. I had no business training. I didn't even know how to run a business. I didn't even know what I needed to do to set up a business. I didn't know anything, AJ. Mm -hmm. I'll just say as it is. No training, no background, no nothing. Just a career of helping people. So I went into that realm thinking I'll be a health coach. And I did end up helping loads of people. But I was doing it and forgetting to negotiate payment. And which is lunacy. I was running my own lunatic gene. I was giving, you know, a premium service away um, just because that's what I was used to doing. And I didn't realize until I got into the city just what skills I was bringing to the mix that were absent in the city. And um, me training people in public speaking was part of a journey where I started working with another entrepreneur. We set up a company together. Uh, called Ace Funding, and um, I was a duck in a new pond learning ropes. And what we were doing was raising funding for people. And so I had to learn really quickly, A, what, what the hell I was doing, and B, what the missing links was. And what I realized here really quickly is that a lot of people my age in the city have reached this point of stagnation where they've got a little bit of public speaking training, but they stopped really stretching themselves. And what I was dealing with was a load of really below average speakers in my world. When I mean, you've been to Toastmasters, you've known the benefit <laughs> of imp constantly improving your public speaking skills. Indeed. I was seeing these dead 
stagnant, boring, uninspiring people getting up and pitching for funding and then having a go at me when nobody was investing in them. So me being me and having to add value to people, I had to prove to them, no, it's not me, mm. it's you. So I started building up relationships with the people with the funds that had the money, getting them live feedback, running events, so I could put these people live in front of real funders and give them real feedback from real people with real money as to why they've got a real problem with mm. the way that they pitch themselves. And because I've seen it so many times that people turn up entitled for funding and it just is so obvious when you're sitting on the panel assessing them. They're not realizing that people buy people, especially at angel investment level. So this is an area that fascinates me because it brings my core skill sets, people skills, public speaking and community building all in a way that the city appreciates. So uh, although it seems like an unlikely transition, it was actually a really interesting one because I was seeing people that had projects that I believed in, but they just weren't translating it. Mm. Scientists, tech people, um, they're the worst. They talk a different language like doctors. Doctors used to talk a language to patients that nobody understood. And I knew that was to cover their backsides. But it seems to me in business, people are doing the same thing. Mm. But it's not a good idea to explain in language that people don't understand when you're looking for funding. Exactly. So my same ability to translate what doctors said to patients, I now use to translate what tech people are trying to say to funders, what scientists are trying to say to funders, mm. because I'm the guy that because I don't know these areas, you've got to put it to me simply. And I'll be honest enough to tell you. Yeah, you've now helped more than 100 CEOs raising funds. My question is, what is the common theme? What are they struggling with? Let's say one or two things that you found like everybody has this problem and that needs to be resolved in order to take their business from where they are to where they want to be. What are those top two things? I've helped Plenty of CEOs raise funds, but more of them I've talked out of it because most people don't really, they haven't thought it through. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't thought through their proposition. They haven't put themselves in the eye of the investor. Um, and a lot of them, especially early stage um, businesses that have got a great idea, and some of them are great ideas, they just don't have any substance to it. They don't know what, um, investors are looking for. They think that talking about something distracting will be really clever. It's never clever in mm -hmm. a pitching situation to try and anticipate questions that haven't been asked. Mm. Great in politics, it's terrible in a pitching situation. So the truth is I talk a lot of people out of even attempting to get funding what I do is help them to add value to their business proposition so that when they come back looking for funding, there's more weight behind it, their confidence is better, and they can justify the valuation. I'm trying to understand from people's point of view about the education, and I see in the media a lot of people are talking a lot of negative stuff about it. They say that the education system in bullocks, it doesn't work, it needs to change. To some extent, I do agree, but I think there is a lot negativity going into that. 
from that point of view, I wanted to know from you now, now that you have done so many different things, I want to understand how did your education help you achieve what you achieved? Well, um, I'm not sure this is going to be the answer you were looking for, AJ, but my school was pretty much a school of life. Um, I didn't really... Uh, <laughs> we had so many lunatics at my school. I was glad that they were calling me a lunatic for coming out of the asylum. This is the truth. Um, People said I was a Shenley Nutter, which was the hospital I went to, you know, that I lived where my parents worked in. And so the real Nutters, and the, we did have a few at our school, um, left me alone because they weren't sure. So actually the labels and name calling worked in my favor. The standard of schooling wasn't great. We were the first year, we, the year after I left um, was the first year they brought in league tables. I think our school was about third from bottom in the county. And there were a couple of special needs schools below us. So oh. the standards of education wasn't what it, but I mean, here's the big but. Um, ours was a school of life and the skills that I learned on the playground and dealing, interacting with the difficult demographic that um, I went to school with gave me the life skills for travel, mm -hmm. to go around the world, people skills. And this is what I think is the biggest value. Um, so with the education system today, I think we're lucky. I think we're lucky because if you go to the likes of places in Asia or Africa, people don't get education at exactly. all. Yeah. So we don't realize we're so busy complaining about, oh, our school's not great. Com go down to South Africa into a couple of the townships exactly, or yeah. go into the middle of Laos into some of the places I went um, and see where, you know, what the alternatives could be. So I think we're lucky, AJ, but I do think that the system needs to change. I think people skills, financial skills, things that kids can use for the rest of their lives. It's really getting them to engage in subjects that they don't see any point for. And if I'm honest, 80% of the stuff I learned at school is not relevant to me in my life. Mm. What did I study? I studied a degree in nursing eventually, but I was thrown out of school at 17 because I was a bit rowdy and not really taking it very seriously. And I think it was those years out of school yeah. that made me respect the education system. So with regard to that, I would recommend to all kids that there's a mandatory two years between 16 and 18 where they just have to go out and get mm. jobs mm -hmm. so that they've got some idea of why they're going to school in the first place. One important thing for the students especially who are coming out of college or the people who are uh, getting into the entrepreneurship or trying to do something what they really want to do, what would be your three best advices for them? Well, definitely for students. Um, what I'm finding is that the students I'm meeting that are coming out with full education, um, there's this belief that, oh, well, look, I've got a top grade, so I walk into any job that I want. And where I find the bit that jars with me is the lack of the people skills or the, the humility that they need to go with that to get mm. what they want. So I would advise any student to work on your people skills, to work on your networking, because ultimately it's not 
it's not what certificates you fly in front of people. Yeah. It's who you know and who likes you. Building relationships is a lot more powerful in business than certificates, especially from people with entitlement issues of having spent tens of thousands of pounds for this certificate and then expecting to walk into a job. I found the attitude of, of some people coming through that system just switches me off straight away. Mm. So my advice, my top three tips, um, brush up on your people skills, brush up on your networking and work on your network. Lastly, how can we reach you? Well, thanks for that question. Um, well, you can get me on LinkedIn. Uh, there's lots of Adam Shaw's, but if you look up Adam Shaw, the heart guy, um, I'm easier to find. <laughs> there's that, or get on my website, adamshaw.co, or there's funbusinessnetworking.com. Um, fun uh, but either way, um, you can contact me, uh, get on LinkedIn, Adam Shaw, the heart guy, you'll find me, and then get in touch, let's have a chat. But if you're connecting with me without a message, I'm probably not going to accept it. So that's something that you should know. <laughs> <laughs> Make it personal, build yeah. the relationship. Yeah. So, so now you know if you have something to talk about heart-related issues or self-development or raising funds for your business, this is the man to reach out to. Adam, it was really, really great talking to you. There was quite of insight that you've given about so many different things. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for your time. Really You're welcome. It. Cheers, AJ. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.